Today we're starting a series of new messages, teaching through the first nine chapters of Proverbs, how to live wisely. Lord willing, we'll be studying these chapters from now until about the middle of June, about a chapter a week. We'll take off a couple weeks from the study here or there. I don't sense that why I teach any portion of the Bible ever needs a defense or an explanation, but I want to give you a few of my burdens for teaching this passage. I have sensed, and our elders have sensed through the last several months, going back almost a year, that we just have so many people who are gathering with us week in and week out who just need ground-up instruction So you might be here and you're asking, like, I still don't get how does religion and belief in God actually affect life in the real world? Proverbs answers those questions, those sorts of questions. One of the other burdens that we have had is just that so many people are gathering with us each week who are battling addiction, and that includes... Uh, those within our membership and those outside our membership. Christians battle with addictions just like non-Christians. Every week we have dozens of people here who are battling addictions. It's one of the reasons that we're pairing this new hymn of the month with the beginning of this series because it so powerfully points us to the gospel if we're battling addictions. Um, Proverbs 1-9 to helps us as we face temptation and even as we battle awful habits of failure to temptation. And uh, I hope that if you're battling addiction this morning or even in coming weeks, you see an, an addiction rearing its ugly head that you thought was buried four or five years ago. I hope that you'll keep coming. I hope that you'll know that you're not alone. I hope that You, like Greg just said, like he prayed, that you can be yourself here and open up to a few people. And I hope you'll find Proverbs 1 to 9 helpful. Not only are people seeking stability as disciples or battling addiction, but many in our congregation are also raising children. And Proverbs 1 to 9 is a poetic letter of Solomon to his son. Almost weekly, I have parents who basically admit help. I have no clue what I'm doing. I didn't have exemplary parents myself, and I just feel lost as to what what it looks like to actually parent kids in my home. And Proverbs 1 to 9 does present us with a helpful model. It touches on many aspects of parenting. So I hope that if you're seeking stability or battling addiction or raising children, uh, not to say that the scripture doesn't apply to you if you're outside of those categories, but, uh, but I hope that it's especially helpful for you if you are in those categories. I want to start out really with some background information. I know it may not be the most exciting, but it's the most necessary. I just want to start out saying, what is Proverbs, right? What, what are the answers to the most basic questions about Proverbs? Like, what is this book, and who authored it, and Who is the author writing to? Some very basic foundational questions. I think it's helpful for laying a foundation and for getting the ball rolling. Proverbs is a collection of proverbs. Go figure. (laughs) You say, what are proverbs? Well, I would say proverbs are pithy, picturesque statements of truth. 
They're usually memorable. Oftentimes they're rhyming. Sometimes they actually are rhymes that you can hear. A lot of times they are verbal rhymes where you're rhyming words and you're twisting words. They're, they're really cool. So one of the most famous in American history is Ben Franklin's early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Um, you might not like that one. <laughs> you say, I've never been one of those people. Sorry for starting there. How about it takes two to tango? That's wise. You might say, hey, give us something more encouraging. Right? Don't judge a book by its cover. It's a great proverb. It's pithy. It's picturesque. We know what it means. It's one that my family was talking about last night. Quote, Sometimes it's the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. It's good. The pastor who planted Tri-County, who I had the privilege of teaming with for seven years, has a proverb that I've probably quoted more than any other in terms of quotations of him. Over the last 10 years, I've probably quoted it a hundred times. Chris used to say, the only thing worse than being single and wanting to be married is being married and wanting to be single. Hmm. Maybe one of the most popular proverbs today that people have in their homes, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. You, you remembered that. Because it's a beautiful, picturesque, pithy proverb, right? These are proverbs. We love proverbs. We speak proverbs daily without even realizing it. Proverbs contains actually seven collections of God-breathed proverbs. And if you tried to count the individual proverbs, there are over 600 individual proverbs in the book of Proverbs. That's what Proverbs is. Second, who authored it? Well, the first verse of Proverbs indicates that Solomon is the main author. King Solomon, king of Israel, reigned between about 970 and 930 BC. I'd ballpark these near the end of his life. He was the king when Israel was at its strongest politically and militarily and financially as a nation. The, the nation was strong economically and the nation was expanding the most under Solomon. There are other authors and collectors of Proverbs other than Solomon in the book, but Solomon's primary. And the first nine chapters that we're going to be studying, he is the sole author It actually shouldn't surprise us that Solomon is the main author of Proverbs because he is the chief author of the Bible's wisdom. He wrote much of Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Songs, and you don't have to agree with me, but I think he also put Job into its final poetic form. He took the historical account of Job and poeticized it, putting the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge right at the center of the book in the poem at the the heart in chapter 28. So Proverbs is actually just one volume of Solomon's series on wisdom. Job is wisdom for suffering. Proverbs, wisdom for daily life. Ecclesiastes, wisdom for the meaning of life. And the song is wisdom for romance in life. His series on wisdom, it shouldn't surprise us that Solomon is the main author. 
Thirdly, to whom was Proverbs written? Well, it says, Proverbs is written to my son. If you look, for example, if you're open to Proverbs 1, look at verse 8. Hear my son. We're going to encounter that a few times in today's reading. You'll also notice, if you look at, for example, chapter 4, verse 1, that sons is plural. Hear, O sons, chapter 4, verse 1. And that's going to occur many other times throughout these nine chapters. Hear, my son, hear, my sons. You need to understand that this reference to his son or his sons, it has at least four levels. You might say it's almost a little bit of like dropping a a stone into a pond and seeing the ripple effect. But first and most obviously, Solomon's son, singular, was the next king of Israel, Rehoboam. And Solomon's sons would include all of his biological children. He had a boatload of boys that he sired, most of whom would not become king, but would still be very influential in the nation over the next generation. So clearly, he's talking to his sons, his son and his sons. But second, it's important to note that in Hebrew culture, sons can refer more generally to descendants, which would include grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons. In other words, it seems especially clear from what we read, and I'm going to point this out in chapter 1, that Solomon was writing for what we might say is his dynasty, his descendants, the many generations of Israel's kings and leaders who would come after him. But it goes even farther. Third, sons doesn't actually have to refer to biological children at all. It's well documented in the ancient world that Kings often took responsibility for all the members of their royal court and, in fact, all of the citizens within their realm, almost like a parental responsibility. These are my children, was was kind of the image. And you can get that, that that a king would refer to all of his courtiers and all of his citizens as sons. And that's really the third facet, that Solomon is writing to his sons and to his Dynasty, his descendants in the next generations, farther out. He's also writing to every courtier and every citizen. But finally, and it has to be understood, that Solomon understood that he was writing for every one of us. Of course, all of Scripture is for us. Paul says that what was written in previous times was written for us, for our instruction. Clearly, God intended it for us. But I think Solomon understood from very early in his reign, if you read, for example, 1 Kings 3.12, Solomon understood that God had appointed him to be one of history's greatest philosophers. And he understood in many of his writings, I think particularly if you read Ecclesiastes 12 or Psalm 72, which is a song of Solomon, If you read these passages, Solomon understood that he was writing God's word for humanity. He was writing God's wisdom for all peoples in all cultures at all times. He understood that about himself. So you almost have to picture it, maybe better than a stone being dropped in a pond with ripples going out. Imagine if you were at Brown Stadium listening to some 
huge entertainer, and all the lights are on center stage down in the middle of the field, and you've got the people who are around him on the ground level. That would be like his sons in the first generation. And then you've got the first tier of, of, of bleachers. And those would be the next generations of Solomon's sons who would rule in Israel. And then you've got the mezzanine level. And that would be really everyone in the kingdom. And then you've got the nosebleeds where we're all sitting. That's the rest of humanity listening in. Solomon understands that he's speaking to people at every single one of those levels. We're all listening in to the words of one of the world's greatest philosophers. So from this point on, I want to read Proverbs 1. I'm going to give a few explanations, as I often do as I read. And then I'm going to work the three paragraphs out and end with the main point. All right, so Proverbs 1, you have it open, Lord willing, to chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, Knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Verse 7 is the thesis statement really of the whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Back in verse 2 was the purpose statement to know wisdom. Solomon wants everyone who's hearing him, everyone who's reading him, to get wisdom. I think it's helpful here to, to say we've got to understand what wisdom is according to the scriptures. The wisdom being talked about throughout all of the wisdom literature of the Bible has nothing to do with how many degrees you've earned It has nothing to do with how many books you've read. It has nothing to do with how many arguments you've won. Wisdom has nothing to do with those things. Further, wisdom is not something that anyone has naturally. It does not get passed on genetically. The biblical term that's translated wisdom is actually a term that refers to skill. You can see it used that way, especially in Exodus 28 and uh, Exodus 35, Exodus 36, referring to artistic skill. Only wisdom is not an artistic skill. Wisdom is a relational skill. It's the relational skill of pleasing God, knowing how to live in a way that pleases God in every facet of life, in every circumstance you find yourself in. Wisdom is a skill. It's a relational skill. Knowing how to please God no matter what situation you're in. Solomon writes in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction and don't forsake your mother's teaching. For they're a graceful garland for your head. They're like necklaces around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent 
Now, if sinners entice you, don't consent. You have to think about it like, how would the people at the ground level have heard Solomon? Well, the young men in Solomon's court, just like politicians today, faced constant temptations of financial gain through theft, corruption, exploitation, oppression, all kinds of things. That's kind of got to be in the background as you hear the the first people who are listening to this. My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come on with us, let's lie in wait for blood, let's ambush the innocent without reason. Like the grave, let's swallow them alive and whole like those that go down in the pit. We'll find all precious goods and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, don't go in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. You think that life is found in quick cash, in oppressing other people, it'll end up robbing you of life. The next portion, verse 20, um, is where Solomon begins a personification. So welcome back to basic English class. Do you know what a personification is? Wisdom here is personified as a stately, elegant woman. Personification is, of course, very common in artistic communication. I've heard men in our congregation say, that's when I went to serve Uncle Sam, or I got the call from Uncle Sam. Or some people will say, Lady Luck was in my favor. Or some people will say, that's when the Grim Reaper came knocking. These are all powerful personifications. Of course, none of those are real people. Uncle Sam, Lady Luck, the Grim Reaper, they're not real people, right? They're representations of reality. And here, Lady Wisdom represents choosing to live in a way that pleases God. Choosing to live in a way that pleases God is like, for one of Solomon's boys, to marry a beautiful, elegant woman who's going to bless him the rest of the days of his life. The reason Solomon personifies wisdom for his sons is to show how attractive it is to live for God. He is also pointing out that if you choose this woman, you say no to other women. It is an exclusive devotion. And he's emphasizing that it is a personal relationship with God and a satisfying relationship with God. He personifies wisdom to communicate those realities. So now let's hear about wisdom and what she's saying. Verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, I would encourage you to underline that term, turn. 
It is wisdom's single demand. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. But because I have called and you refuse to listen, I've stretched out my hand to you and no one heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, that's when they'll call on me, but I won't answer. They're going to seek me diligently, but they won't find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They wanted none of my counsel. They despised all of my reproof. So they'll eat the fruit of their own way. And they'll be satiated, filled. Their stomachs will be so packed, they'll say, (laughs) they'll be filled with their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. The carelessness, I don't care what God says. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Now, I said that Solomon, it's clear in chapter 1 that he's writing prophetically in a way that would apply to the, the dynasty, the, the generations ahead. And I just want to point out that in the generations that followed Solomon, as Israel's decimation came closer and closer and closer, Lady Wisdom's words were repeated by Israel's prophets. Let me give you a few examples. Micah 3, verses 1 through 4. This is 200 years after Solomon. They will cry to the Lord, but he won't answer them. 300 years after Solomon, Jeremiah says, I'm bringing disaster on them that they can't escape. Though they cry to me, I won't listen. Ezekiel will quote Lady Wisdom, again, about 300 years after Solomon in Ezekiel 7. The land is full of crimes, full of violence. I'll bring the worst nations to take possession of their houses. And when anguish comes, they'll seek peace, but there shall be none. Or listen to Zechariah 400 years after Solomon. They refused to pay attention to the Lord. They turned a stubborn shoulder. Listen to Zechariah's words. As I called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations and their land was left desolate. Hmm. Solomon is writing as a prophet. If you know Israel's history, Solomon's sons didn't pay attention to wisdom. The first three sections of Proverbs 1 is where Solomon describes the foundation for a wise life, the basic steps toward a life of wisdom. If you say, I want to know how to live in order to please God in every respect, the first question I'd ask is, do you respect the Lord? This is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Do you respect the Lord? In verse 7, I pointed out the thesis statement of the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The very root of wisdom 
is respect for God. It's the central thing. It's the beginning point. It's like a football coach says, you can't score a touchdown if you don't have the football. There's, there's a lot more than having the football. But there is no progress in the game at all if you don't have the football. It is the central point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the Old Testament, the most simple and straightforward way of saying that someone has a right relationship with God is to say this. She's a God-fearing woman. He's a God-fearer. Someone who fears God, get this, to fear God, working kind of from the ground up, you must understand that he exists. You must understand that he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, he has spoken specific promises regarding world history, where all of human history is going. You need to understand that he gave you life that he gives you life, that you are totally accountable to him. And you also understand, because you don't always live for him, that that judgment that we're going to face before the God before whom we're going to give an account, that judgment's not going to go well. The way Jim Middleton sometimes puts it is, the fear of the Lord has as its root that we need to understand that God is a threat to our existence terrified of him God you made me God you made me for a purpose and I haven't lived up to it God I'm scared that is at the core of what fearing God means that's not all it means but that's at the core and someone who fears God understands that the only way to be right with God is through the sacrifice that he himself provides and you trust God and you commit your life to obeying God so fearing the Lord, it's living as the relationship with God. Your relationship with God is the most important relationship in your life. You live with Him as your authority, not you as your authority. To respect God is to care about what He thinks about you more than you care about what anyone else thinks about you. That's how the Bible describes the fear of the Lord all throughout. So I ask... Is it accurate to say of you, you're a God-fearer? Have you personally come to shake in your skin, as it were, because you realize that God made you, that you're going to give account to the most authoritative, powerful dictator ever? And do you realize that because you're alive, you are alive for a purpose, the God who is sustaining your life wants you to live for Him. But you're going to give an account to the Sovereign King for many, many times. In fact, the whole trajectory of your life living for you and not for Him. Are you aware that that accountability trial is not going to go well? Have you ever been so terrified to the core of your being that you have cried out, how am I going to stand before God? Or you've gone further and you've said, how can I be saved? That's the beginning point. That's the beginning point. 
Have you come to realize that the Creator gave His one and only Son to die on the cross, bearing your punishment, so that if you took refuge in Him, you could be forgiven and changed? If you have trembled before God and turned from your waywardness and entrusted your life to Jesus, then you've begun to fear the Lord. Who God is matters to you. What he says matters to you. What he thinks of you matters to you. But if God's existence doesn't make much of a difference to you, and if his words are kind of like take it or leave it, I don't know what God says, but you know, I want to do my own thing. And if what he thinks of your life, like how you talk and think and act, if it doesn't really affect you much, you just kind of go on living how you want to live, then you don't fear God. You don't respect God. You will never even get on the path of wisdom. And if that's you, I urge you right now to come to terms with reality. Start reading the Bible from the first page and consider whether the mighty and merciful God revealed in those pages is the real God in the real world in which you really live and breathe. Come to terms with reality, the most fundamental reality, God. Do you respect the Lord? That's where all wisdom begins. Secondly, do you repudiate peer pressure? I said, if you want wisdom, you've got to care more about what God thinks of you than what your peers think of you, than what your culture thinks of you. This is fundamental. Verses 8 through 19 are where Solomon basically urges his son to to reject the allures of peer pressure. He says, if you cave to peer pressure, boys, you're going to ruin your life. But if you repudiate the influence of your closest peers who are pulling you to live in a way that's disobedient, you'll be protected. That advice, of course, shows that one of the most fundamental protections that parents can give their children is to teach them to say no to peers who are trying to lure them into a lifestyle that ignores God. One of a parent's chief responsibilities is to say, you can say no. You can stand on your own two feet. You don't have to listen to those friends. You woo your children. You don't yell at your children to do this. You woo them to do this. I will love you. God will love you much more importantly. It doesn't matter whether anyone else loves you. If God loves you, you have all the support you need. Care about what God thinks of you, not what your friends think about you. Train your children. We must train our children to care what God thinks about them more than their so-called friends. Of course, saying no to bad friends won't make you wise. It'll just provide you the opportunity for getting wisdom. It's sort of like school, right? 
If you cave to the temptation of your friend who's sitting in the row next to you, who wants you to mess around all class period and, and you know, flick little uh, um, <laughs> um, spitballs. I was going to say wadded up pieces of paper. Did, did you actually chew these things? No, okay, you would never do that. <laughs> Spitballs. You got a friend sitting next to you saying, hey, let's have some fun. If you're going to get an education, you're going to have to say no. But saying no just provides you the opportunity to listen to what the teacher is saying and to learn from what's going on, right? Saying no isn't enough. It's just critical. It's absolutely critical to your education. Similarly, saying no to peer pressure and being willing to to obey, to follow God alone, no matter what it costs in terms of other relationships, is critical. Following God is where you'll get wisdom. Saying no is the, uh, the critical prerequisite, as it were. Thirdly, do you repent when corrected? This is the third facet in the last part of chapter 1. If you want wisdom, you've got to repent when God corrects you. This is where Solomon portrays wisdom that he wants his sons to get as a beautiful woman. She's standing at the entrance of the city where most people are, where most of the business takes place. And in that very public place, she's shouting to everyone, if you want wisdom, she says, just turn when I correct you. But... If you just ignore me and you don't want to be corrected, if you just stubbornly refuse to be teachable, when the judgment of God finally comes, there'll be no escape. And it's through that vivid picture that God teaches us that wisdom comes to all who repent, those who turn when God corrects them. And I think it's helpful. It's really interesting. It's beautiful to think about this lady calling, as it were, almost with a megaphone in the in the business, the commerce center of the city, saying, Turn, turn. You say, Where would I hear God's voice correcting me? Well, there are many places. You might just be reading the Bible. Or you can hear the voice of wisdom, maybe through your parents giving you counsel. Or maybe it's a friend saying, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Or maybe it's through a pastor's sermon. You say, well, that guy's saying, it's something I really need. Don't just ignore it. Listen. Let it lead you to turn. It could be through nature. There have been times some of the most life-shaping times of my life when I have been under the night sky and the grandeur and the beauty of a starlit sky brings me to my knees saying, God, who do I think I am? Nature's beautiful goodness or dreadful immensity can act as the voice of God saying, turn. The quiet of your own conscience. The conscience is not always accurate, 
but you can listen to your conscience saying, I know something's not right about what I'm doing. And instead of bulldozing your conscience or searing it like with a hot iron, is what Paul uses, you listen. You listen. When we're corrected, we must repent. Repentance, getting even more nitty-gritty into the details, it refers to a turning of heart, and we actually can't do this ourselves. God actually gives us a soft heart. He brings us to hate what we've done, to see how offensive, how putrid it is to him. And we dread the consequences, the dangers that we face as a result of what we've done. And we start to grieve, saying, God, I've sinned against you. And repentance is an actual turning where we say, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me through what Jesus has done for me. God, I don't want to live there. I want to commit myself to to change, to not living like I have in the past. That's turning. That's repentance. Starts in the heart. And it comes out in the emotions. And it leads to to calling out for help and decisive change. This is the evangelical grace of repentance, as the old confessions call it. Those who are wise don't just turn once. There's often a decisive beginning point. Those who are wise have a life habit of repentance. It's like a heartbeat. If repentance is not a constant part of your life, your heart's not beating. You're dead to God. How can you say you're alive to God when your heart is not beating? And if you repent, but it's only occasional and it's not regular, you might be alive but you've got heart problems that need to be addressed. Repentance is like the heartbeat of the Christian. So according to Proverbs 1, this is where we wrap up, you're on the path to wisdom. If you respect the Lord, repudiate peer pressure, and repent when you're corrected. I could liken these first three sections of Proverbs 1 to your first three years in the College of Wisdom, Wisdom University. Your freshman year is the most basic foundation. Respect the Lord. You build on it in your sophomore year. Be okay with not being in the in crowd. In your junior year, you add to it. Every time you're confronted with truth, turn. Repent. And next week when we study chapter 2, Lord willing, we're going to get to senior level wisdom. I can't wait. Did you think that these were the classes you needed? You might be sitting here saying, I don't need all of this philosophy about respecting the Lord. I need someone to help me with my patience. Actually, no. You need to fear God more than anyone or anything. That's where it begins. Don't jump ahead to habits. Start with God. 
you might think, I need some practical tips for saying no to my addictive behavior. And God says, oh, let's, let's back up. Do you have the courage not to care what other people think about you? To repudiate the influence of other people on you? You might say, this philosophy stuff doesn't make sense. I mean, you're talking about grief. No, what I really need is to stop feeling so bad about myself. And God says, no. Are you willing to recognize that you're going the wrong direction and repent with all the grief involved, with all the humility involved? Are you willing to turn? It's critical. You might not think that these are the classes you needed today, but nothing is more foundational than a right view of God repudiating peer pressure and turning from sin. So I want to end here. Did Solomon's sons listen to his wisdom? The history of the Bible's Old Testament demonstrates that Solomon's sons consistently chose the path of folly, not wisdom. They chose to ignore God's prophets, constantly cave in to peer pressure, whether it was other people in the royal court or the populace at large, and over centuries, they consistently refused correction. King Solomon's writing about 900 years before Jesus, and within a few centuries after he writes, his sons collectively drive the nation into the brick wall of decimation. And when God's judgment fell, it was awful. There was no escape. If Proverbs teaches us anything, it teaches us that we don't merely need wise counsel. We need changed hearts. And more basically, we need Jesus to forgive us and to change our hearts so that we want to hear God's words, his counsel, and we want to obey. See, teaching right from wrong is necessary, but it should drive us to Jesus. It should drive us to say, why do I want wrong so much? Why don't I naturally gravitate toward the right? I need Jesus. If you're parenting, more than any parenting technique, you as a parent need Jesus. God help. And your kids, more than any differentiation of right and wrong, your kids need Jesus. They need a change of heart. They don't just need to know what's right and wrong. They need to love what's right and hate what's wrong. They need Jesus to change their hearts. If you're struggling with addiction, truly, some instruction and some strategy is helpful. But more than anything, your addiction should drive you thousands of times over to say, I hate this sin. Jesus, I want you more. Jesus, help. Jesus, I'm not going to let go of you until I see you. Show your prevailing grace's power over this sin in my life. And if you're wondering, my life's a mess. I don't even know where to start. Start here. Jesus. 
He was crucified for you. He rose from the dead so he can beat sin and death. And he's going to return to reign as king of kings forever over a new heavens and a new earth. Start here. Call out to Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus for forgiveness. You need Jesus for strength. Beg the good shepherd to bring you into his flock. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would instruct us in wisdom. I pray that your wisdom would drive us to King Jesus. I pray, God, that uh, my impassioned words would give way to quiet reflection, personal transparency, slow dialogue between friends one-on-one, prayer, engaging with you. God, I pray that all of us who've heard your word this morning would be doers and not just hearers. In Jesus' name, for his glory and our good, I pray. Amen.